looking at a mouse. Who's gonna flip it? The Montan Longo. Gonna flip that bathroom. Little boxes made of ticky-tacky Little boxes on the hillside Little boxes all the same There's a green one and a pink one And a blue one and a yellow one And they're all made out of ticky-tacky And they all look just the same Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Hannah Joffe-Walt. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Tuesday, July 27th, and that was a clip from the TV show Flip This House you just heard at the top. Today on the show, crime and intrigue. We take a look inside what could be a $200 million mortgage fraud scheme. There is drama. There are forgeries, arrests, and there are names like Keyworth and Wexler. Before we get to that... We have for you today, as always, the Planet Money Indicator from our blogger, Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money Indicator, $32 billion. That's how much money that BP says it's expecting to pay for the Gulf oil spill. Big number. What does it include? So the, the biggest chunk of it is that $20 billion fund that you remember BP agreed to a while back to, to pay claims related to the spill. It also includes about $3 billion that the company's already spent on the cleanup. And, and there's this estimate of, of other future costs that the company explains. That includes not only the direct response to the spill, but costs of litigation and fines under the Clean Water Act. So this $32 billion, is that going to be it for BP? They pay this and they're done? It's unclear, actually. In the same paragraph where they talk about how they got to this estimate, they also lay out a couple of assumptions they made. Uh, one assumption, that they're going to be able to permanently plug the well in August, uh, and also that they were not, quote, grossly negligent in this case. And grossly negligent is a legal definition that could have bearing on how much they'll be on the hook for it. So if either of those assumptions are, are wrong, they could actually end up owing more. So $32 billion seems like a really big number, but is it? Like, does $32 billion actually matter to BP? There's actually another piece of news in this release from BP today that I think answers your question in, a, in an indirect way. Uh, BP said it's going to raise $30 billion by selling assets. So what they're going to do is they're going to sell oil and gas fields, and they'll end up selling about 10% of their assets to raise this $30 billion. So in answer to your question, I mean, yes, it's a big deal, but it's 10% of their assets. So $32 billion, significant, but if the number doesn't get any bigger, it's, it's not going to put the company out of business. I think that's right. Okay. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, guys. All right. On to mortgage fraud. So, Hannah, as you mentioned, you and I, we recently found ourselves at what really was a crime scene. And it's a crime scene that, weirdly, we are connected to. So I'm going to give some quick background here. It's going to take about 30 seconds. We here at Planet Money, we bought a toxic asset. We spent $1,000 of our own money. We wanted to better understand the financial crisis and watch the recovery. And our toxic asset, it's a bond filled with 2,000 mortgages, 2,000 homeowners who have not been doing so well, not paying their mortgages, a lot of them. So we packed up the toxic asset paperwork into a suitcase. We went to Florida to find out why. That was the last podcast. And that's when we ended up at the crime scene. We had asked a local reporter at the Sarasota Herald Tribune for his help in finding some of the homeowners in our toxic asset. His name is Michael Braga. And Michael Braga found something neither of us were expecting. One of our homes is connected to the biggest story that they have been covering at the newspaper, what might be an enormous mortgage fraud scheme led by a guy that the guys at the paper have been calling the king of the flip. He just may be the biggest uh, case 
of mortgage fraud in U.S. history. His name is, is Craig Adams, and he engineered more than 80 deals, which he has told the FBI about, that were in some way fraudulent. Those 80 deals, uh, properties, were worth about $200 million. So, Hanna, before this, when I heard about mortgage fraud, I always thought of some couple kind of fudging something on their mortgage application, but this is much, much larger. No, in Florida, mortgage fraud appears to have been pretty widespread and organized. The reporters at the Sarasota Herald Tribune have been looking into this one circle led by Craig Adams, the king of the flip, and it was a kind of fraud scheme based on flipping houses back and forth for higher and higher prices. So people taking out larger and larger loans from the bank and then dividing that money up amongst themselves, among the people in the circle. We are going to look at how this apparently worked by following one house. This is a house on Cove Terrace in Sarasota, Florida. This one is not in our toxic asset, but we have a house down the road that is connected to the very same scheme. The story of what happened at Cove Terrace begins with a man who may be the very last person to have truly loved this house, the last person to own it before it was sold into the circle of flippers. Fred Bloom is my name. Fred Bloom? Fred Bloom. Isn't Dr. Bloom a perfect name for an allergist? Are you an allergist? I am. So what's this that we're looking at? We're looking at my former house, 7685 Cove Terrace which I lived in for about 10 years, loved the house. Dr. Bloom, the allergist, raised his two daughters in this house. And it's a really nice place. It's on a quiet street, on a cul-de-sac. It's got four bedrooms, red tile roof. It's painted sort of like, you know, that Florida salmon-y kind of color? Um, And it has a pool and a boat dock. And we had a little boat, and my kids enjoyed water skiing and fishing and, you know, family activities. At the time I owned it, it was a a two-story family room with windows up above, and you could sit there and watch lightning, and you could watch the sky. Just a warm, warm warm-feeling room with the big windows and light. So they were good years. You can hear me sort of walling up now. Oh. That's right to have your kids grow up, huh? Exactly. it It was a good time in our lives. And there, appropriately, are the crickets or the cicadas or whatever they are, right as we get to the drama. The drama began the moment that Dr. Bloom decided to sell this house that he had loved. Um, It occurred after my wife and I got divorced, and she moved out of town, and I stayed in the house uh, trying to sell it because she had half equity in the house. And it didn't sell, and it didn't sell, and it didn't sell. My wife wanted to get another realtor, and we did. And she had the house for, I think, a three-month contract. And then towards the end of her contract, she became very intense about trying to lower the price so we could sell it. What do you think about that? I wasn't happy about lowering the price, uh, but my former wife was saying, I want my money, and the realtor was saying, let's get it sold. And And I wasn't happy about that. I was not happy about lowering the price. And then we had an offer from Craig Adams. This is the realtor, Candy Swick. Now, we should just point out that this was back in 2000, Craig Adams was not known at this time as the king of the flip or possibly the ringleader of a gigantic mortgage fraud scheme. People called him something else. They called him real estate genius. Craig's offer was was very good. It was right on the mark. And when he made the offer, it was a fair price. It was like, this is good. Take it and run. It's been enough time. And I resisted as long as I could and then decided the fight is is over. So I, I caved in. 
Dr. Bloom sold the house for $600,000, which was much less than he wanted for it. And then a few weeks later, he's at the grocery store shopping and he runs into a former neighbor from Cove Terrace. And he says, hey, how you doing? How are the new people on the block? And they told me that my house had sold again. And he mentioned the price of seven twenty-five, And I was really upset. And I said, that's $125,000 more than I got for it. That was only a matter of a couple of weeks. Oh, it was weeks? It was just a matter of a couple of weeks, yeah. You must have been mad. Yes, I was. I was not happy. Dr. Bloom had no idea what was going on, and he didn't for 10 years until he gets a phone call from one of the reporters at the Sarasota Herald-Tribune. So the Sarasota Herald-Tribune was looking into what seemed like a lot of illegal flipping around Florida. And Craig Adams' name came up several times, including on the Cove Terrace house. So one of the reporters, Matthew Doig, calls up Dr. Bloom and he says, do you remember the details of selling that house? Thinking Bloom probably won't remember anything. It's been 10 years. But Bloom remembered every detail of the sale. He had held on to this resentment and to this mystery for 10 years. Why did he try to sell for over a year, try to sell his house for $700,000 and eventually have to sell it for 600000 And then weeks later, with the help of this guy, Craig Adams, it gets turned around and sold for $725,000. Here's that reporter, Matthew Doig. After Dr. Bloom is out of the picture, it, that house is completely controlled by Craig Adams. And every time it is sold... Adams is, is representing both the buyer and the seller. And that house sold many, many times. And in fact, Dr. Bloom, it looked like he sold the house to Craig Adams, but Craig Adams actually got his friend, Steve Wexler, to sign for it. So Steve Wexler buys it from Dr. Bloom. And then Steve Wexler sells it to John Keyworth for $725,000, who sells it to Craig Adams, who actually buys it at one point for $1.1 million, who sells it to Kelly West for almost $1.5 million, who sells it again to Charles Scott Abel for close to $2 million. So it sells five times in four years and basically triples in price. Yeah, and Dr. Bloom the whole time is really perplexed about what's happening. He still lives in the neighborhood, and the house just keeps going up in price, but it doesn't look better. It kind of looks worse. Occasionally, I would drive by the house and drive through the neighborhood, and at various times, the yard was really in disrepair. When it was in disrepair, did it look like no one was living here? Yes, yes, it looked like it was vacant. The house looked vacant because... Probably most of the people in Craig Adams' circle didn't live in the house. So the way the Tribune lays this out is all these guys were connected to Craig Adams. And the idea here is that with each sale, someone would take out a loan that would pay off the previous loan. And since it was bigger than the last, there would be extra cash to split among the players. So like, David, if I buy a house for $500,000 and then I sell it to you for $600,000, we use your $600,000 loan to pay off my $500,000 loan. And then we have an extra $100,000 to split between the two of us. So, Hannah, even after I learned how the scheme worked, I still had a lot of questions. Question one... Why is the bank letting this happen? If all these people are connected, wouldn't the bank look very, very carefully at this? If you're selling to your friend or your associate or someone you know, you're supposed to declare that to the bank, right? Yeah, they didn't. They didn't declare it to the bank. That's part of why this is fraud. Okay, question two. Whenever a bank makes a loan, right, an appraiser is supposed to take a look at the property and do an independent assessment of what it's worth. So shouldn't the appraiser have noticed that house just sold a couple weeks ago for a lot less? So this is hard because it's a bubble and houses are appreciating like crazy all over Florida. It wasn't, 
you know, totally weird that housing prices would go up quickly enough for a home to triple in value in four years. In Florida, the bubble was growing really, really fast. But but yes, the Herald Tribune has been looking into the appraiser question. They've actually been looking into whether some of the appraisers were in on this whole thing also. And as we know, David, personally, in a lot of the cases, the banks weren't holding on to these loans. They were selling them off as quickly as they could to Wall Street, and Wall Street was packaging them up into complicated bonds like Toxy, which got sold to investors. So the banks weren't as worried about, you know, how this would all end up. I have one more question. What the hell were the people in the circle thinking, right? Because at the end of the day... Money, money, money. No, at the end of the day, they've just got a bigger loan than they started with, right? All you do is inflate maybe the value of a house and you take out a bigger loan. You still got to repay that loan. Yeah, I asked that question to Guy Sakala. He's the publisher of Inside Mortgage Finance. Was it was there a plan? <laughs> like like in a lot of these scenarios, was there a plan of what where this ends? Um, there wasn't a great exit strategy. You know, in hindsight, these weren't geniuses figuring out these um, plans because they had a lot of pitfalls, even if home prices were continuing to rise. Most of them saw quick money right away and weren't figuring out how it was going to play out over time. Right, because the only way that you can, the only end that I can imagine that where you don't end up having to pay back the loan is that you sell the house to some legitimate outside buyer who doesn't realize that it shouldn't be that expensive. That's true. But keep in mind, if you're buying a house that's worth 600000 um, but you manage to convince a lender that the house is worth 800 or, let's say, a million dollars, you're essentially pocketing that difference in the short term. You're basically getting that money yourself. But only in the short term. In the end, you still have to pay it back. That's not the way a lot of the people look at it, is paying back. They look at it as, it's a lot of money, I can go spend it, I'll worry about paying it back down the road. And down the road... We now know things didn't go so well. In 2007, the Cove Terrace house was owned by yet another associate of Craig Adams. The housing bubble pops, and this guy defaults on more than $2 million in loans, and the bank ends up foreclosing on the house. And when that happened, when the foreclosure happened, Candy Swick, Dr. Bloom's real estate agent, happens to get another call from a client interested in the Cove Terrace house. So for the second time, 10 years later, Candy Swick pulls up the Cove Terrace listing. Oh, my gosh. What did it look like? It looked like it had been sold every couple years. And I see Craig Adams listed and sold. 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 And it's like, this is not right. And as for Dr. Bloom, after 10 long years of being furious at Candy Swick for, for not getting him the higher price, he says he now understands and he forgives her. And he said he's sorry. Craig Adams, the king of the flip, he is now an FBI informant, according to the Sarasota Herald Tribune. He's helping the feds investigate the circle. There's been one arrest, at least. The closing agent, the person who did a lot of the paperwork for some of Craig Adams' deal, has been arrested. And actually, on the FBI affidavit for that, I was going through it, going through it, it lists a bunch of fraudulent mortgages. One of them is one of our houses in our toxic asset, which is how we got onto this. 
we were so surprised when we learned that. So this kind of scheme happened in Sarasota, in other parts of Florida, in California. It happened all over the country. It even has a name. It's called the straw buyer scheme. So in this scenario, Wexler or Keyworth, one of those guys would have been the straw buyers. The thing I kept wondering about the more we learned about this was, did it matter? Was this something that caused the bubble? Was this really helping inflate the bubble? Or is the bubble happening and when you have bubbled, you have some people doing fraud along the side. You know, the effect of this kind of fraud is actually really hard to measure. I mean, obviously, it has some local effect, like one house shoots up in price. Maybe the other houses on the block go up in price. Maybe on the downside, you know, if there's one house in foreclosure, that has some effect on the neighbors. But can you see this kind of fraud having a big effect in home prices overall? Like during the bubble, do you see, can you see Craig Adams in the case Schiller Housing Index, you know, most people have been telling me probably not. It probably had a much more local impact. So flipping fraud is probably not happening now anyway, because this kind of scheme only works when there is a bubble and housing prices are rising. But there's a different kind of scheme that is happening now that people are talking about. During a bubble, there's a flip. After a bubble, there's a flop. And if you want to understand more about how that works, we have something on our blog describing it, npr.org slash money. I'm Connor Joffe-Walt. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. And there's doctors, there's lawyers, and business executives, and you're all made out of ticky-tacky, and you all look just the same. And they all play on the golf course And drink their martinis dry And they all have pretty children And the children go to school And the children go to summer camp And then to the university Where we all get put in boxes and